Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. For our call to confession this morning, we have a couple passages from the book of Proverbs, starting with Proverbs 12, 2 through 3, which says, A good man will obtain favor from Yahweh, but a man of evil schemes he will condemn. A man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be shaken. And the second passage from Proverbs 29, verse 12, If a ruler pays attention to a lying word, all his ministers become wicked. This morning we'll be reading about Nehemiah later on and the struggles he experiences leading the people of Israel and trying to finish the wall of Jerusalem. Throughout Nehemiah we read about three enemies of God, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, three men who were rulers in the surrounding area, and three men who were constantly trying to hinder the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Scripture gives us this great contrast in Nehemiah 6 between the behavior of the righteous who are relying on God, going to him faithfully in prayer and doing his will, with wicked who through political wrangling, bribery and lies, seek to hinder God's plan. Like the proverb says, a man will not be established by wickedness and Yahweh will condemn the man of evil schemes, which we see play out later in Nehemiah 13 in the book where Tobiah's goods are thrown out of the temple after scheming to have a place of power established within God's very house. Nehemiah, in contrast, being a man and a faithful ruler, does not believe in the lying words that he receives, rebukes the men for their lies, and commits himself to God, calling on Yahweh to strengthen his hands. His behavior sets forth a standard for those under him, guiding their understanding so they will not fall into the same wickedness. We, like Nehemiah, need to have the same conviction in our lives, seeking to root out evil and recognize the schemes of all those who seek to frighten us and make our hands limp doing good works, as Nehemiah puts it. This call is especially critical for those of us who are parents, even leaders in our workplaces or our homes in other ways, as we need to be on guard for our children and those under us, rooting out lying and instead teaching the whole counsel of God promoting truth and seeking peace with one another. Let each one of us then examine ourselves, striving to put off scheming and lying words and seek to grow in the knowledge of God, pursuing truth and loving righteousness. This reminds us of our Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, the next installment of our Nehemiah series, pretty much chapter by chapter so far. We will be reading uh, three verses into chapter 7. I forgot to note that in the bulletin. So Nehemiah 6 and then the first three verses of chapter 7 today. Once again, hear God's word. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent sent to me saying, 
Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have some cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these their works, and the prophetess Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets, who would have made me afraid. So, the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days. And it happened, when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by God, by our God. Also in, these, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me, and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Then it was, when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors, and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. The grass withers, the flower fades, this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Well, I don't usually do this, but I put in the sermon outline there two different themes. Usually I have a sermon theme that kind of summarizes in one sentence what's going on. If you take a look at the outline today, you'll see two of them. 
And I thought I'd just give you a, a glimpse into the pastor's study this morning, which is that the first step in studying a text is to determine what the text theme is. What's, what's the text actually saying? And then sometimes for sermon purposes, you want to translate that, adjust that a bit for a sermon theme. So you see the text summary there. Nehemiah wisely rejects fear and thwarts plots against him. That's just summarizing what Nehemiah 6 tells us, right? Well, that's not necessarily a a sermon. That's more a history lecture, right? So how is the pastor supposed to preach that? Well, uh, so here you see my translation today or my attempt at one. Uh, Reject fear and deal with obstacles to godly living. That's one way to consider how we are to apply this to our lives. So let's walk through this. Uh, four, first four verses are uh, fascinating indeed. I use the, the A word, assassination. And I think it's apt. And this is not uh, something that Nehemiah highlights. And this is a, an aspect of Scripture we often see, I think. There's, there's often understatements made. And Nehemiah, I think, makes several of them. And here is one. Uh, Sanballat sends, and he's seeking to do him harm, right? Do me harm. Well, that's kind of innocuous, right? But if we use the word assassination, that, that kind of changes things, doesn't it? I think that's accurate. I think he's seeking uh, to take out Nehemiah. That's what most of the scholars uh, think it is. Could be something less. I mean, you know, think of the mildest case in our political discourse. Whenever the president goes off golfing, when there's some trouble going on in the world, right, then he comes under some level of criticism. Maybe it's that kind of thing. Well, Nehemiah's way off in Ono when Jerusalem's distressed. Oh, Nehemiah's not a very good leader. Maybe it's just that kind of criticism. But most likely, uh, Sanballat really is seeking to destroy, to take out Nehemiah. Take out the leader and the the building of the wall will likely stop, is the idea. Uh, I jumped ahead a little bit there. Verse 1, it says, When I had rebuilt the wall and there was no break left in it, and then there's this parenthesis, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. There's an aside to consider there. Uh, The doors were not hung. If you go back to chapter 3, you'll notice that that at the beginning and throughout the first half of the chapter, it says that the doors were hung. Uh, The priests built this gate and they hung the doors and so on. And then the, the next people built the next gate and they hung its doors and so on. So this is the kind of contradiction, quote unquote, that the cynics will use to attack the Bible. And it's something to keep in mind. Uh, there's a contradiction here. Obviously, the chapter 6 is contradicting chapter 3. So the Bible can't be reliable. It's not accurate, is the uh, assumption that's often made. You'll see charts sometimes of all, all the ways in which Scripture contradicts itself, pointing to, pointing to various texts, and this would be one of those. But it's not, uh, uh, it doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Uh, first, Nehemiah isn't strictly chronological. Chapter 3 gives us the whole picture of the building process. But really in chapters 4 through 6 of Nehemiah, the final stages of the project are still ongoing. Uh, And it's also possible that several city gates did not have their doors up yet uh, when those that mentioned in chapter 3 did. Uh, So a couple of things to consider there whenever you, you, you get people who are trying to poke holes in the consistency of Scripture. Well, so here you have this assassination attempt, and it's answered. And Nehemiah answers it in in verse 
is it four? Verse three, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And notice there, Nehemiah really sees through what Sanballat's trying to do. Sanballat's trying to stop the work. And, and if he can get Nehemiah far away from Jerusalem, that's much more likely to happen. So he simply replies with a flat denial and says, the work is more important than meeting with you. So the first assassination attempt is answered. Um, just a brief application, I didn't even have this in my notes, but it's not always ob obligatory for us to meet with whoever wants to meet with us. If there's someone that is hostile to our purposes and they ask for a meeting, it's not necessary for us to agree. Sometimes a denial and a refusal is wise. Verses eight, 5 through 8 comes next, the next attempt by Sanballat. After four times do, trying this same thing, Sanballat sends an open letter, which is very important. If you send an open letter, most letters were sealed back then so that nobody between you and the other person could read it. When you send an open letter, what you're saying is uh, anybody could read this and see what's going on. Any of Sanballat's people could read it and send off a letter to King Artaxerxes to curry favor and repeat this, this gossip. Any of Nehemiah's people could read this, and it might sow doubts to Nehemiah's integrity. So Sanballat sends this open letter, uh, makes this stuff up out of thin air about Nehemiah wanting to be king and rebel against Artaxerxes. He, he um, quotes uh, Geshem, that's an interesting one. Doug Wilson recently wrote a whole book about that phrase, and Geshem says, that's the book title. <laughs> the whole point being, he, he's just claiming this other guy says the same thing. I'm making this up, and this other guy says it too. But it's all just rumor and, and hearsay. So uh, that's what Sanballat is attempting here. Nehemiah sees through this trick. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. He says, why would the next governor over from Nehemiah want to meet with Nehemiah if he hears that Nehemiah is rebelling against the king? You'd want to stay as far away from that toxicity as possible. Right? I'm not associated with that guy. He's a rebel. But no, he wants to meet with me? When he, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He'd stay away. Nehemiah realizes Sanballat is trying to get leverage. He's trying to scare Nehemiah into going to meet with Sanballat so Nehemiah can clear his name, so he can protest his innocence, right? He, he, he wants Nehemiah to come to him kind of groveling, saying, no, no, this isn't true. Oh, I'm, I'm not rebelling. But Nehemiah doesn't have to do that just because Sanballat makes some stuff up. So it's a power move. And, and Nehemiah sees through that too. Verse 8, he gives another flat denial. He basically says, this is not true, you're making it all up. <laughs> that's, that's as curt as his response is. Uh, so that's Nehemiah's second response. Now, uh, next we have verse 9, uh, a, a key verse. They were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And you get the same thing a few verses later, back down in verse 13 and 14. It's the same uh, thing after we get some more trouble. Uh, verse 13, for this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, that they might have some cause to reproach me. 
And then another prayer in verse 14. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat. So Nehemiah is doing two things here. First of all, he's realizing the motive of, of the wicked. Uh, they're trying to make Nehemiah afraid. It's straight up psychological warfare. If you can intimidate someone, uh, you can um, blunt their energies uh, for the project that they are seeking to do. If you can convince them that it's not worth it, all the trouble, if you can convince them that, look, this is too dangerous, so we better, we better back off until it's safe, then you've stopped the work. That's what Sanballat is trying to do. But it's not too dangerous, and it's, uh, and it's something Nehemiah sees through. So he sees that, that they're seeking to make him afraid. And the second response Nehemiah has is prayer, both times. When you discern what the wicked are up to, our best response is not more anger. Our best response is not a post on social media. Our best response is prayer to God for help. And that's what Nehemiah does. Remember me in verse 9. So in one way, Nehemiah is appealing to God, saying, I'm trying to do the right thing, and I see what they're doing. And then in verse 14, it's more outward focused. It's, remember those enemies who are doing that. I see their agenda. They're trying to make us afraid. They're trying to thwart uh, your kingdom. Uh, so both uh, directions in prayer are, are warranted. Well, back to verse 10, uh, the next thing that happens, you see this is just one round of uh, opposition after another, right? Verse, first four verses was one thing, then Sanballat's open letter is the second, and now verses 10 through 12, this is the third that Nehemiah reports. Verse 10, I came to the house of Shemaiah, uh, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who is a secret informer. Now, whenever you have a, a name and then several more names, like son of, son of, son of, that that's generally some prominent person, a nobleman of some sort. They've got a genealogy, they're, they're prominent. So that's Shemaiah. And he's a prophet, uh, we see in verse 12. Verse 12 mentions that um, he pronounced a prophecy against him. And it also seems like Shemaiah has access to the temple. Come into the temple with me, he says. So it, this Shemaiah guy, we know nothing more about than that, but it, but it seems like he's a prophet, he might be a priest, some kind of nobleman, and he's a spy, a secret informer, is the word Nehemiah uses, which, to put it more bluntly, he's a spy. He's, he's telling uh, Sanballat and Tobiah everything Nehemiah's doing. What does he do? Uh, he uh, encourages, urges Nehemiah uh, to come meet with him in the temple. Uh, and the temple is a, a place of uh, safe haven, of refuge, right? Uh, you can close the doors and be as safe as anywhere in the whole country. Uh, safer there than anywhere even in the, in the walls of Jerusalem. The temple is the safest place to be. And so Shemaiah does the same thing that Sanballat does. He appeals to his fear. They're coming to try to assassinate you. You'd better get in the temple so that you're safe. That's what he's doing. It's interesting that Shemaiah, now this is not a, a foreigner. Sanballat's a Samaritan. Tobiah is an Ammonite. Uh, of course, they would seek to work against God's people. But they've convinced Shemaiah, who's an Israelite, 
uh, probably a priest, most likely a prophet, of God's people. They've convinced Shemaiah to prophesy falsely and to get Nehemiah to do something crazy. Uh, As I thought about this, I tried to think of an illustration, and I resorted to my Lord of the Rings, so my apologies for going there if that bugs you. But it's, I think, a lot like Saruman the wizard. If you remember the story, Saruman was the, the head of the, of the wizards, right? He was highly respected. Uh, he knew a lot. He was wise. But in the story, he's the one who goes to the dark side, so to speak. And it's completely unexpected by Gandalf until he sees it. You just don't expect that kind of thing. Shemaiah's a kind of Saruman, person. Opposition to God's will often shows up in the least likely places, high places, respected places, places of power and influence where you thought you could trust. That's Shemaiah, the prophet. The problem with that is that that can make us paranoid, (laughs) right? If opposition can come from anywhere, what are we to do? And that can set us against leaders that we're called to respect. Right? Some are very prone to run with this and question every word, every motive of every authority figure in their lives. Their president, their governor, their township supervisor, their teacher, their pastor, their parents, what, whoever it is. Now it's true, we should be Bereans Right? Acts 17. We should check everything with the Word of God, even if it's the Apostle Paul preaching to us. That's certainly true. But it is not always helpful to have a cynical attitude, always thinking, you know, you're probably out for more power and influence for yourself. Anytime you hear any teaching or are exposed to any kind of uh, authority figure. Uh, this is one aspect of worldly thinking that I think is seeping into Christians' lives these days. It's the Game of Thrones mentality. Probably most of you haven't seen that, and that's perfectly fine. But it, that, that series popularizes this postmodern Marxist critical theory that everything is about power. That's what the whole thing is about. Truth claims are just power claims. Right? Well, maybe your parents aren't just trying to control you. Maybe they really care about you. Right? This, this whole critical theory thing, it's so divisive and sows such discord. Kids seep, get that worldview seeped into them, and they think, my parents, my teachers, they're just out to get me. No. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe God sets up the world with some authority structures for our good. That's what he does, kids. He gives you parents for your good. They're not perfect, of course, but they're not out to get you. Maybe your pastor isn't trying to manipulate you. Maybe he's trying to feed your soul with the truth. He's not perfect either. But it's not just all about power. So uh, that's something to consider, that that we can uh, become paranoid when we see a Shemaiah show up and we think, man, this could just be anywhere. This must be everywhere. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to get us to believe. Uh, But it's not. 
uh, God has to tell Elijah at one point, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, so we have to remember that. Now, what is Shemaiah's point? What is he trying to do here? He's trying to get Nehemiah into the temple. And it seems, that the scholars seem to think that Nehemiah is not a priest. And so to go into the temple itself would be a ritual violation. So that's, that's one problem. Uh, some, I, this is something to consider later, I hope this doesn't distract too much, but some even say that Nehemiah is very likely a eunuch. He's been hauled off into exile and he's the cupbearer to the king. That was often a eunuch's job. Well, a eunuch couldn't go into the temple either. So there, that's a, a double whammy if that's the case. But Nehemiah here is probably um, being urged uh, to um, be personally safe even if it violates the temple ritual. And so uh, I would say, if, if you use the president analogy again, this is like the president getting death threats, right? Anyone in high office. Most of the time, you just need to carry on and not act afraid. You just have to go about your business. There are occasions where there's a guy on the south lawn shooting at the White House windows, and the Secret Service rushes in and hauls off POTUS to the bunker, right? That does happen sometimes. I'm not saying that's always wrong. But a key point here in Nehemiah 6 is this. We cannot be shaken to paralysis by every rumor, every news story, every threat. We cannot be. That's the point of Nehemiah 6, I think. And this all comes back, verse 12, to Sanballat. Uh, just as all cultural opposition to God's kingdom and God's ways comes back to Satan, right? There are principalities and there are powers at work corrupting the minds and hearts of men. But notice there's also this cadre of highly placed Israelites, nobles and prophets who are opposed to Nehemiah, who are allied with Sanballat, right? We get several of their names there. Shemaiah, Tobiah, Sanballat, Noadiah, the prophetess, She's also a false prophet. Don't know anything more about her. There's this cadre of people opposed to Nehemiah. And that, that surprises us a bit, right? As, as far as we've read in Nehemiah thus far, everything's looking pretty rosy, right? It's like the whole city is on board with the project. The wall's being built. Now it's done. This is going great. Well, there's another side to the story, Right? And this surprises us because we imagine the people with Nehemiah all to be faithful, regenerate believers, fully on board with only worshiping Yahweh. Not so. Not so. Many of the people had simply come back from exile and wanted to be back in their own land. But they had lost faith in Yahweh. Don't forget the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares as we know it, right? It's God's design to have weeds sown in among his people. And that's troubling to us, but it's simply a description of reality. The church is not the gathering of the regenerate only. We can't do that, right? The church is the gathering of those professing faith in Christ with their children. It's God's design to be that way. And, and we see that throughout Scripture. A mixed multitude comes up out of Egypt with Israel. Judas was one of the twelve. And Jerusalem here in Nehemiah's day has several people working against Nehemiah. So expect some troubles. Expect some opposition. 
and sometimes from the least likely places. Jesus at one point has to stop Peter, Peter, his closest disciple, and say to him, get behind me, Satan. That's an illustration of what we're talking about. On one occasion, not all the time, right? We generally want to encourage and help one another in the right ways. But sometimes we need to say, hold up a second. What's, which way are we going here? So this opposition, and that takes us through verse 14. We've considered the prayer there already. Verse 15, uh, Nehemiah then uh, takes a moment to uh, mark the completion of the wall. And notice it takes 52 days. That's fairly clear in the text there at the end of verse 15. That's fascinating. Only 52 days. The commentators note that. Wow, that's a short time to build a whole city wall. And some even think it wasn't even possible. But I I think it is. And the point is that uh, Nehemiah is a, a, a competent and a faithful and an eager leader to get this project done. And he does get it done. His enemies, God's enemies, are dis- disheartened. Uh, they were very disheartened in their own eyes. They perceived this work was done by our God. And here I think the point is, there are all these nations around, Sanballat, the Samaritan, the Tobiah, the Ammonite, right? All these nations around, they have been despising Israel for decades. Because Israel has no walled cities, no security. They can just maraud over Israel however they want to. But now it's not the case. Now all of a sudden Israel has a walled city just like they do. And that bothers them. They don't like that. So uh, Nehemiah takes a moment to mark this out, that the wall has been completed. Uh, There's some application for us too, I think. We ought to mark significant events, significant moments. Uh, One thing we're going to be doing uh, is celebrating 20 years of Christ Church this coming April. So that's, that's an exciting thing. We're also doing the same for the CREC in, in the fall. The council meet, is meeting in Moscow, Idaho, and celebrating 25 years of the CREC. Those are good things to do, to mark some uh, anniversaries like that. We've started this project. This is the project we're on. Here's the mission we're after. So to, uh, to mark that time and re-articulate the mission is always a good thing. So Nehemiah does that. He simply describes that the mission he was sent on uh, from Persia to Jerusalem has been completed. And yet, verse 17, more ongoing opposition. Fascinating. He continues to bring this back up. I think it's a, it's a literary thing. He's repeating this over and over and over because, the, because opposition to God's kingdom is incessant. That's the word. It, it, it doesn't stop, right? In those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, verse 17. Letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him. They're related to each other. You see all these names we know nothing about. But the point is, the nobility of Judah is intertwined family-wise, marriage-wise, with Tobiah the Ammonite, which wasn't supposed to be happening anyway, but that's what Nehemiah is dealing with. So many of these nobles are really on Sanballat and Tobiah's side, reporting to him. They're trying, and I, I love the, the phrase where it says they reported uh, his good deeds to me, right? They're trying to make Tobiah look really good to Nehemiah. Like, hey, you should really work with this guy. He does X, Y, and Z. He's the, he's, he does all this great stuff. Well, 
Yeah, but he doesn't want the wall built. He's an Ammonite who's trying to interfere with God's people. He's, he's not on the right mission. He's against God's kingdom. So I don't care how hard a worker he is or whatever else. He's not one of us. So that's Nehemiah's uh, basic take there. So <clears throat> these nobility are, are, are spying on Nehemiah. They're uh, trying to uh, get him on Tobiah's side. It's a pretty big mess, even as the wall itself is completed. Uh, I discern two responses from Nehemiah uh, with this ongoing opposition in the uh, three verses of chapter 7. That's why I read on there. I think it's a a natural section itself to stop at verse 3. And what we see in those three verses are two responses from Nehemiah to this ongoing opposition. So one is an outward one. There's outward security, right? Uh, Verse 1, we see the wall is built and I hung the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. Uh, So not only the wall, but the gates and the doors are done and there's gatekeepers, right? And verse 3, you also see it uh, where he says, don't let the gates be opened until the sun is hot. And then it's a little unclear what comes next, but I think the point is, uh, close the gates early in the day, basically, right? It, normally in this day, the custom was you would open the gates at sunrise and you close them when the sun sets because when it gets dark, you don't know who's going to try to sneak in. And so Nehemiah is taking some extra precaution and he's saying, just wait a couple hours until after sunset, sunrise before you open the gates. Make sure it's broad daylight so we're totally sure there's nobody attacking us. And don't wait until sunset when it's starting to get dark and you can't quite see. Close the gates an hour or two before that so you're sure. That's basically what Nehemiah is doing. So one response he's giving to this ongoing opposition is just outward practical security, which we've talked about a bit before. Make sure there's no threats and attacks out there. If you want to, you could discuss, talk about this as having a bunker mentality. Right? I use that phrase usually in a, in a derisive way. It's something we usually don't want to have as a bunker mentality. We want to be engaging with the culture. But there are times, and this is one of them, where Nehemiah is wise to make sure the gates and bars are all how they should be because there are real threats out there. Um, this is why we read from Acts 19, by the way, when, Paul, uh, when there's the riot in Ephesus and Paul wants to go into the, the riot... It's an extremely humorous scene if you, if you imagine it. It's classic Paul, type A personality, who wants to go and preach wherever there's a crowd. But this crowd is amped up, screaming and shouting for hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians, right? They're there to make sure everybody knows they worship Diana. And so Paul's disciples and the officials of Asia all are pleading with Paul, don't go in, don't go in, bad idea right? Sometimes it's a bad idea to try to go and engage the culture. That, that's not the right time right there. <laughs> Sometimes it's just some wisdom in, and prudence in how we do that. But there are other times in Acts 4, we see the apostles just say right to the Sanhedrin's face, hey, I mean, you decide if we should obey you or God, because God told us to do that, and you're telling us not to do that. We're going to do that. So, so there's a boldness and a fearlessness there that we also need. And the apostles show that in Acts 4. 
Well, anyway, so two responses to the ongoing opposition. One is this outward security, and the other is in verse 2, and it's more of an inward uh, administration thing. Verse 2, I gave charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man. Here's something to consider. Nehemiah was there to build the wall. He was not there to manage the city once that was done. He had one job, and he knew what it was, and when it was done, he gives the the command, the authority over to others who can do the next thing. Sometimes it's time for others to take up the mantle and carry on the city management. So when you see compromisers and enemies all around, uh, as, uh, all around us as the church, as God's people in your families, one of the best responses to that is to raise up faithful men, faithful children, to help build and fight faithfully. Think long-term. That's the best response. We often watch the news and we want to we turn around and stop whatever news item we just saw and flip it and stop them in their tracks right now, right? That's, that's, that's the fleshly response usually. God's word tells us something different. Raise up godly people uh, to fight these battles in the days to come because it's not just now. It's not just in this moment. This will be incessant. And we need faithful people. So Hanani is one of those. Nehemiah has uh, cultivated, he's a faithful man, he can trust him. So uh, two responses there. One, just basic outward uh, security. And another, uh, delegating, raising up godly men. This is why we read from 2 Timothy 2, right? That raise up uh, faithful, uh, from among faithful witnesses, those who can teach others also. So, that's what Nehemiah does in, re, in response to this opposition. So, he's, so notice how balanced he's being, right? He, those who are coming at him saying, uh, a conspiracy, a conspiracy. Right? This is what I read from Isaiah 8. See, that's not always the case. And, and even if it is, I'm, I'm not allowed to just be afraid like you're telling me to be afraid. Right? I think over half the news today is just simply telling us, be afraid! Yeah. (laughs) And we need to resist that. Find news sources that that aren't shouting that at you, but that are just giving you the news. Right? So Nehemiah resists that call to be afraid, but he also takes concrete steps that he sees are needed. Right? Keep the gates closed a little bit longer than usual. That's a reasonable step given what's going on around him. Right? But also, don't just concern yourself with the outward threats, but look to uh, yourselves. And he deals with Shemaiah, he's dealing with Hanani in a constructive way. Well, uh, just a short little bit on um, how this relates to Jesus and application, and then it'll be done. Jesus, again, is uh, a type, uh, Nehemiah is a type of Jesus, excuse me. Jesus faces stiff opposition throughout his public ministry. And several times they seek to arrest and kill him before it comes to Good Friday. Jesus did not allow himself to be blown off course from his mission. And that's something to consider because he could have been. And many people often are. Jesus doesn't deal with the Sanhedrin. And by deal with, I mean 
chase them out, get rid of them, excommunicate them, right? Jesus doesn't deal with the Roman occupation of Israel and several other atrocities when he's on this earth. He had a singular mission. And Jesus stayed on that mission. He, now, he, of course, he, he takes some time to address those things, uh, but he stays on mission. And I think there's a parallel there with us. We don't have, of course, the same mission of atoning for sin that Jesus did, but we do have a specific calling that's going to rule out us fighting some battles. Right? You're going to see things out there in the news or whatever, and you're going to think, man, somebody should stop that. But very often, it's not going to be your battle to fight. That's what makes watching the news so frustrating, I think is because we see all this stuff we want to change, the, way, the information we're getting is so overwhelming, and yet we can't do anything with all that information. That's part of the trouble of the modern age. But, but the, these battles, they just aren't ours to fight right now, and that's okay. Nehemiah did not feel the need to set Sanballat straight just to finish the wall. All he had to do was keep them away so that they could keep building the wall. He didn't have to convert Sanballat. He didn't have to go meet with him and try to convince Sanballat. Sometimes that's not the calling. Well, last point of application and then I'll be done. Um, and it's this. We, when we're faced with um, opposition or uh, the acts of the ungodly, we are tempted to rash action. And that's what Nehemiah was tempted to. He's tempted to go way off to Ono. Ono was way off in a corner of Israel, far, far away, and meet with all of his enemies just because he would want to clear his name. That's not smart. <laughs> that would have been a rash action. But it's, but it's provoked by this open letter hey, you're trying to rebel against Artaxerxes. This guy knows Artaxerxes face to face. I highly doubt Sanballat did. And yet Sanballat's got the gall to say to Nehemiah, you're trying to rebel against Artaxerxes. And this other friend of mine knows it too. And everybody else can read it now. And anybody can report this. It's very provoking, right? And so we're tempted, Nehemiah I think is tempted to rash action. But he avoids it. He just says, you're making it up. It's not true. And he keeps on the task. That's exemplary. And that's something we need to consider. We are often tempted to rash action in the face of evil. And I want to apply that in four ways before we're done here. So kids, I'm going to start with you, okay? Kids, think about this. When you're at home with your little brothers and big sisters, you are tempted to rash action in the face of problems, right? Your little brother trips and crashes into you and hurts you. You get mad and you hit him back because he hurt you, right? That's what I'm talking about. We're, we're tempted to rash action like that. And maybe even, maybe in that case, it's just an accident. But it doesn't matter because he hurt you. you. They hurt you, you hurt him back. Well, maybe you know that he's trying to hurt you. You still don't hit him back, right? We're tempted to rash action like that. 
When somebody hurts you like that, most of the time, as Jesus says, we need to turn the other cheek. Let it go. Don't return evil for evil. It's also in the family. Another way to apply this would be uh, with parents. Parents are often tempted to rash action when they see their children sin. It, it grieves us deeply. And sometimes it's because they're sinning just like I would have sinned. And man, that makes me mad. Because I see that in them and that, that's me. And so I come down extra hard on that. Parents are tempted to rash action in response to ungodliness too. And I'm going to get Kyperian on you here. There's the family, the state, and the church, right? Three spheres of authority. So let me give you two more, one on the state and then one in the church. Um, in the state, I hesitate to bring this up, but I think I should. We're tempted to rash action in the realm of the state. And I think the classic example right now is the January 6th Capitol riot. I know it kind of galls us to hear about that again, but it's the perfect illustration. I had friends who were at the rally, and it, it was a good thing, uh, but then the riot turned into a bad thing. And that became a cause for reproach against some good people. That's what Nehemiah avoided. No rash action. That, so that's happening all the time. You'll see that sometimes in politics where... where <clears throat> The other side will goad the other side to take some rash action, and then they can blame them and point it out. Have to watch out for that. And in the church, too, there's an example, too, I just heard recently of a church, hours from here, no, no close association, where there's conflict in the church, right? And when there's conflict in the church, that really bothers us, because the church is supposed to be a, a safe refuge of peace, Right? And so when conflict happens, there are always some people who take rash action and quickly exit. And let, let me just go find a place where they're not fighting. And that, that's all you want. We're prone to leave when conflict happens. And that's difficult. I, I consider it, for the most part, rash action. Because you're going to find conflict everywhere in life. And we need to find a way to deal with it. So we're tempted to rash action in response to the acts of the ungodly. In our families, with our siblings, with our children, our parents, in the state, in the church. We need to take Nehemiah as an example. Not fear man, fear God instead. And be wise, be prudent, be bold to continue diligently in the work that he's given to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for providing us uh, such uh, rich instruction. We ask, Lord, that your will would be done on earth, in our families, uh, in this congregation, in this community, as it is done in heaven. Uh, help us work towards that, we pray. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as we talk to our communion exhortation. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. 
Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And then from Psalm 27 as well. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And two things are needed when we face these enemies. We need to be fearless, and we need to be content. Two things, fearless and content. Nehemiah was fearless. We've heard a bit about that. And the psalmist says, of whom shall I be afraid? We know we need to fear God. And we know also we should have a healthy respect for the damage that evil can do in our lives. Not discounting either of those things. But here we're talking about being scared and intimidated by God's enemies. As if they might win. (laughs) Right? We sing, we're going to sing in a moment. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Those are words we believe. We need to be without fear. And we need to be content as well. As every family knows, when someone is not content with the menu at dinner, it's very disruptive to fellowship and peace together. Right? We know that. And it's easy when things don't go your way to be discontent. And we can come to this table discontent with the troubles that we have in front of us, with the opposition we see around us. It's good to turn back to our Heidelberg Catechism that we read this morning. This is what we read. I trust God so much that I do not doubt He will provide whatever I need for body and soul. He will turn to my good whatever adversity He sends upon me in this veil of tears. He's able to do this because He is Almighty God. He desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. So this battle that we're engaged in, whatever God has given you, that battle is exactly where he wants you fighting right now. Don't complain that you have to go through trouble. Jesus told us, in this world we will have trouble. But he gives us the grace to come through it. His word of truth and promises and instruction. He gives us communion with his son here at this table every week. He gives us fellowship as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So come, for all things are now ready. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.